So John chapter 5, uh, we'll be starting at verse 18. It says, This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these he will show uh, these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who has sent me, he does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given to him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing of my own accord. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. The Father who has sent me has himself bore witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have the word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If anyone comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another, and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Well, have you ever told a story that was true and somebody didn't believe you, didn't believe your story? Well, when I was growing up, uh, we had a lot of farm animals. We had goats, chickens, ducks, rabbits, all different sorts of farm animals. And it was my job to take care of them. I'd go out each day and give them food and water. And I'd go out one day, I think it was wintertime or maybe late spring because I was wearing boots. And I go into the pen, and the pen was kind of a, a, just kind of a separated part of the yard, and there was a gate to go in there. And so I go into the gate, and I'm giving the animals the food, and then I look at this rabbit, and this rabbit gives me this look that I, can, I still can remember the way it looked at me. It's just like this crazed look, and then all of a sudden it comes over and jumps on me kind of Monty Python style comes over, just attacks my leg, and thankfully it grabbed onto my boot, it didn't get, you know, the flesh, but I'm like, you know, kick it off, and like, it just completely freaked me out, because never thought a rabbit would come up to attack me, I wasn't provoking the rabbit, wasn't doing anything to the rabbit, I just walked in there, and it came over, and jumped on top of me, 
So I go and I tell my mom, Mom, the rabbit attacked me. She says, the rabbits don't attack people. I said, look at my boot. I've got a hole in my boot. Honey, you must have got that somewhere else. Rabbits don't attack people. And then, of course, she went out, and the same thing happened to her. The rabbit attacked her as well. Then she believed me. Uh, There's a lot of stories of people throughout history who warned of something coming or uh, who made some uh, extraordinary claim, and yet people didn't believe uh, believe them. Uh, There's a Greek uh, legend, the legend of Cassandra, and and in this Greek legend, there's this woman named Cassandra, and she's loved by the god Apollo, and Apollo was said to uh, make an agreement with her that he would give her the gift of prophecy, and in return, she would have to do some things for him. And so she agreed to that, and then she was given the gift of prophecy, and then uh, she didn't come through with her end of the bargain. And so he couldn't take back that gift of prophecy that he had given her, so he decided that he was going to add a curse to that gift of prophecy, that she would have the gift of prophecy, but nobody would believe what she said. Sometimes people refer to uh, this situation now as a Cassandra syndrome or Cassandra complex. A number of stories throughout history where this has happened. Uh, there's a man named, by the name of Roger Boisdely. Boisdely was an engineer, and he worked for a company that was associated with NASA back in the 80s. And during this time, they were building the Challenger rocket ship, you know, spacecraft, and he warned his superiors that there was the, these rubber O-rings that were on the, the Challenger, and that if it was too cold outside, that they could potentially become brittle and break, and the spaceship could come apart. And so he convinced his superiors to warn NASA, and then his superiors warned NASA, but they continued, went on, even in the cold. It was a cold day in the 30s or 40s uh, down in Florida. And then, sure enough, shortly after takeoff, the Challenger exploded, and the people inside were killed. Two men named David Bernays, Charles Sawyer, they were American scientists uh, who were studying the mountains of Peru. And while they were studying the mountains of Peru, they found that there was this great uh, glacier, and underneath the glacier, there was this topsoil and kind of these loose rocks. And so they went and they warned the authorities, hey, there could be a massive avalanche that could occur at any moment. You've got to make some precautions. You've got to do something about this. Not only did they not believe him, but they threatened him with jail time if he didn't recant his story. Sure enough, eight years later, there was a great avalanche and over 20,000 people died. And that city became essentially a national graveyard. I think even to this day, there's no inhabitants in that land. A man by the name of Adlai Stevenson. Adlai Stevenson was uh, ambassador to the U.N. under John F. Kennedy. And uh, Adlai Stevenson went down to Dallas, Texas on U.N. Day. And he was giving a speech, and he encountered a real uh, riotous crowd, real ruckus crowd. And, and, you know, they were just yelling at him. There was so much anger and vitriol. He actually went and and started talking to one of the women in the crowd, and she took a uh, picket sign and hit him over the head with it. And he goes back to Washington, and he warned John F. Kennedy's speechwriter. He said, I don't think the president should come to Dallas, uh, at least... I don't think he should come to Texas, and for sure he shouldn't come to Dallas. Well, the speechwriter never even warned John F. Kennedy, and then we all know what happened a month later. 
he was shot and killed in Dallas. This happens with uh, meteorologists all the time. You know, you know, oftentimes when there's these great natural disasters, hurricanes or tornadoes, you know, people will say, I, I never expected this to happen or it just came out of nowhere. And a lot of times, you know, these meteorologists have predicted that it's going to happen, but for whatever reason, people think, well, it's not going to be that bad or it's not going to happen to me or I'll be able to make it through this. So what is it that causes us not to believe the truth? What causes us to reject the truth? In the passage that we're looking at today that we just read, we encounter the Jews who, again, in John, I think, refer mostly to the Jewish religious authorities who reject Jesus' teaching. And not only that, they're seeking to kill Jesus because he uh, has healed someone on the Sabbath and, he says that they, and they say that he has claimed to be equal with God. And so what are the things that cause them to reject Jesus? In this passage, I see three factors that, caught, that, that, that are kind of obstacles to the Jews believing in Jesus. And as we look at these three obstacles, they're not the only obstacles, but I think they're the obstacles highlighted in these passages. And as we look at them, I think we can look at them from kind of two perspectives. We can kind of look at them from the outsider's perspective and kind of have an explanation of what are some things that cause unbelievers not to believe in the gospel. And it can kind of provide us with an explanation for why sometimes people reject the truth, even you know, if it's self-evident. But also, I think we can use it as kind of internal uh, diagnostic. We can use these things, and, and as we look at them, we can kind of see the things in our life, the obstacles that maybe cause us to not believe in Jesus cause us not to obey what we know God has said. Cause us not to hear God's voice. So three factors in this passage. The first, pass, the first factor is the authority factor. It says in verse 18, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. See, at the heart of why the Jews are so angry is because it's an authority issue. It's an authority issue. What Jesus says here in telling someone to carry a mat on the Sabbath and claiming that he's equal with God is he's saying that he has a certain authority, that he's equal with God. He goes even further and says that life is found in him and life is uh, not found in any other, that he has the ability to give life. And the Jews don't like this authority that he has. Friedrich Nietzsche, who wasn't a believer, atheist, said this, sometimes people don't want to hear the truth because they don't want their illusions destroyed. Sometimes people don't want to hear the truth because they don't want their illusions destroyed. And I think that's kind of what happens in this passage. These Jewish religious leaders, they don't want their illusions destroyed. And what were their illusions? Their illusions were they were in control. They had power. They had authority. They thought they had the corner on God's word. They thought they knew God's word better than anybody else. They thought that they kept God's word better than anybody else. And they, so they felt like they had all of this authority and all this power. But really, it was an illusion. If Jesus was who he said he was, if the things that Jesus said were true, it would mean they'd have to reevaluate everything that they knew. It would mean that they didn't really have the authority that they thought that they had. I think as human beings... 21st century, I think that we sometimes suffer from similar illusions. We suffer from illusions believing that we're in control of our own lives, that we have authority, 
Sometimes we uh, have this rebellious streak in us. If someone tells us what to do, we want to do the opposite. And I've had people tell me things before, and you know, so, someone might say, you really have to do this, do this. And then after thinking about it for a while, I come to the realization, yes, that's a good idea. I should do this. But because they told me that I needed to do it, they commanded me to do it, I'm like, I don't really want to do it anymore. Even though I know it's true, I know it's the best thing to do, but because they told me to do it, I don't want to do it. It's an authority issue. We don't want to change. We don't want someone stepping on our toes. Uh, there's an old story in the American frontier days. There was a settlement in the West, and uh, it was a lumbering town, and this lumbering town decided that they were going to build a church. So they built a church, called a pastor. Pastor came in, and they had a really great relationship. They uh, had a nice little church, and then uh, the pastor noticed something interesting that this, uh, the people in the town were doing. Uh, there were other towns that would send logs down the river uh, and, and you know, kind of transport them down the river, and they would put these uh, markers on the end of their logs to uh, show who they belonged to. Well, the people in this town would go, and they'd take these logs from, that were in the river, and then they'd cut off the identifying markers so no one would know who it was, and then they would use it for themselves. So they were stealing other towns' logs. So the pastor, you know, was really distressed by this. He thought he had to say something. And so he preaches a sermon on the commandment, Thou shalt not steal. After the sermon, he was really surprised because people came up to him and said, Great sermon, pastor. Really, really good word from God. They were all excited about this message. The next week, he decided he was going to preach a similar message. But at the end of the message, he said, Thou shalt not steal, but also thou shalt not cut off the end of thy neighbor's log. And after that, they ran him out of town. They were fine with the things of God as long as they didn't cause them to change. As long as it didn't step on their authority. And I think in our culture, freedom and autonomy are some of our highest values. We don't want other people to tell us what to do. We don't want people to tell us that we need to change. Oz Guinness kind of traces some of this thinking through the last several centuries. A man by the name of Leon Battista Alberti said this in the 15th century, a man can do all things if he will. Karl Marx in the 19th century Germany said this, man is free only if he owes his existence to himself. Friedrich Nietzsche said this, if there were gods who could bear not to be gods, Therefore, there are no gods. Herbert Spencer once said this, Progress is not an accident, but a necessity. Surely must evil and immorality disappear. Surely must men become perfect. John F. Kennedy said this, Man can be as big as he wants. No problem of human destiny is beyond human beings. Ayn Rand said this, Man's destiny is to be a self-made soul. E.O. Wilson finally says this, Humanity will be positioned godlike to take control of its own ultimate fate. I, I think we have this fear of authority. We have this fear of giving up control. And we have this idea that we need to be free, that we need to have autonomy. But our freedom is really an illusion. We're always going to be serving someone or something. If we're not serving Christ, then we're serving the elemental principles of this world. And those are the things that kind of govern our destiny. If we're not serving Christ, then what are the things that govern our destiny? It's our flesh, 
our circumstances, the people around us, other people's opinions. But if Christ is our treasure, if we're tethered to Christ, the one who created the heavens and the earth, the one who commands the winds and the waves, he is the one who directs our lives. And so this idea of autonomy, of freedom, is really an illusion. We all are tethered to something. We all serve someone or something. It's coming under the authority of Jesus frees us from the burden of trying to live life on our own, trying to command our own destiny. But this authority factor, it's something that keeps people from believing in Jesus. And sometimes maybe it keeps us from obeying God or hearing God's voice because we want to do it our own way. We want to have control of our own lives. So that's the first factor, the authority factor. The second is the focus factor. In verse 30, for verses 39 to 40, it says this, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. See, if we're looking for the wrong thing, we'll never find what we're supposed to find. If we're looking for the wrong thing, we'll never find what we're supposed to find. Uh, several weeks ago, uh, I was ordering a Christmas present for my brother. My brother wanted some football cards for Christmas. And so I ordered uh, what I thought was a box of cards and then a sleeve of cards. And so about a week later, I get this package in the mail, and I get this little uh, bubble wrapper that, you know, you could fit, fit a sleeve of cards in. But I didn't get the box of cards. So I didn't think much of it. I thought to myself, well, um, maybe, the, maybe it's going to be coming from a different place. And it'll probably come later. So I didn't think much of it. And then it's getting close to Christmas time, and it's, nothing else came. And so I'm thinking, hmm, I better call the store. So I call up the store, and they're like, let me check with the warehouse. Let me see what's going on, see if they sent it out. And so they check with the warehouse. Then they call me back and say, hey, we talked to the warehouse. They're sure that they sent out this package to you. I said, well, I don't know what happened. Like, I don't have it. I mean, I got the sleeve. I don't have the box. And uh, they said, well, we can file, you know, a missing package form with UPS. And I was like, well, I didn't miss the package. I mean, I got the package, just, just didn't have a box in it. So like, well, let me check, check again with the warehouse. And they're like, all right, the warehouse has pictures of, uh, of those items being sent. Do you want us to send you the pictures? I said, sure, send me, send me the pictures. And I look closely at the pictures, and I see that there's two sleeves of cards in the picture. Then, like an idiot, I call back. I said, I, I found out the problem. I, uh, I was looking for a box, but there was two sleeves. And I ordered a box, but there was two sleeves of cards. They said, well, you actually ordered two sleeves of cards. See, I'd never looked in that bubble wrapper for those two sleeves of cards because I was looking for a box. When the box didn't come, I just assumed it hadn't come. If we're looking for the wrong thing, we'll never find what we're supposed to find. In this passage, we see these Jewish religious leaders who are so focused on the wrong things. They're so focused on their own righteousness they're fo focusing on keeping the law as a means of, of earning their righteousness or at least keeping their righteousness before God. That's their, their goal. Their goal is uh, making themselves look better than other people around them. And so it's so remarkable in this passage that Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, comes and they completely miss Him. 
I mean, the whole point of the Old Testament, as Jesus says, uh, and as Paul speaks of, the whole point of the Old Testament, it all points to Jesus. Moses, the one that they had put their hope in, that they put their trust in. Yes, the, the law was kind of a means uh, of expressing Israel's faith to God, but it was also meant to point them to their uh, the fact that they couldn't keep the law, the fact that they needed a Messiah, they needed someone to come and be their righteousness. And so they, their hope was in Moses. They believed Moses was their intercessor, their mediator, and Jesus says, Moses is going to be your accuser because Moses spoke about me. Moses was pointing forward to me. He was pointing forward to the true righteousness who could fully keep the law, who could change people's hearts. And yet these Jewish religious leaders, what do they do? They say, Jesus, he's healing people on the Sabbath. He's breaking the law. Jesus, he claims to be equal with God. And so they completely miss the point because they're focused on the wrong things. I think we can do similar things in our lives. What are some things that maybe we can focus on? Maybe we see Christianity as fundamentally being about a a moral improvement project. Now, I want to be careful here because, you know, when we come to Christ, you know, it should change us. I mean, Jesus changes everything. He changes us from the inside out. But sometimes people think of Christianity as like, uh, you know, Christians come together and they try to be good people so that they're better than everybody else. That's the furthest thing from the truth. And so sometimes, you know, if you know, somebody falls into sin, you may be a Christian and maybe a Christian leader falls into the sin, and then you know, unbelievers look at that and be like, well, that person was a Christian, that Christianity must not be true. But for those of us who are believers, if we see something like that happen, we're grieved by that, we're distressed by that, maybe we're surprised by that, but we all know that we're all sinners. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is uh, deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Romans three twenty three says, For all have sinned and, and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all sinners in need of grace. And we're not people who come together and say, Yeah, let's become great people so that we're better than everybody else. We're broken people who come to the waters of life and we say, Jesus, come and heal us. And sometimes even as Christians, we can kind of take this mindset, even though we believe in grace, we believe in the gospel, we can kind of take this idea and, and, and in practice we're kind of building up our own righteousness. And if we're doing really well and, and, and doing what we feel like God is calling us to do, then maybe we're filled with pride. Or we think, you know, I follow God's word better than the other person. You know, I read God's word more than this other person. I pray more than this other person. I give more than this other person. And we use it as a source of spiritual pride. Or if we're not doing so well, then we're in the depths of depression. We feel like God's given up on me. Like I'm a complete failure. But we're focused on the wrong thing. It's not about our righteousness. It's not about us earning our standing before God. It's about coming to Jesus and allowing him to transform us having a relationship with him. Another way people can lose focus is, is seeing Christianity fundamentally as, as something that improves our circumstances. And so maybe an unbeliever will see a Christian who's dealing with suffering and say, well, that person's a good person and they're suffering, so I guess their Christianity isn't really doing anything for them. 
Or for those of us who are believers, if we're following after God and, and doing the right things and then bad things happen to us, maybe we wonder, you know, why am I doing this? I mean, it seems like I struggle just as much as everyone else does. And, and again, it's the, the problem of focus. It's not about changing our circumstances. It's about having a relationship with God that changes everything. Being a Christian doesn't mean we don't have any problems anymore. It's about knowing the Savior of our souls, experiencing life as it was meant to be lived. And so we can lose focus, and losing focus on the things of God, the things that are important, can cause us to maybe reject God's voice, disobey, and not believe the things that we know to be true. So that's the second factor. The third factor is the pride factor. uh, verses 43 to 44 says this, If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Jesus makes a very interesting observation here. Jesus says, If another comes in his name, then you will believe them. There were many false teachers in Jesus' day and before Jesus' day and after Jesus said, there'll always be false teachers. And the thing about false teachers is that oftentimes what false teachers do is they present things that are very attractive to the culture around them. They say things that people really like to hear. And here's the thing. There's some things about the gospel that are hard to hear. They're hard to reckon with. For example, the teaching that we're all sinners, that we're all broken, that we're all in need of grace. Sometimes that's hard for us to swallow. Jesus says things that are hard on the pride. He erases all superiority that we might feel over anybody else. That we're all equal, we're all broken before the foot of the cross. And so Jesus comes, he teaches some things that are tough for people to hear, that we're sinners, that we're broken, also that life doesn't revolve around us. That's harder for us to hear as human beings that are often filled with pride than if someone comes along and says, hey, you're doing great. You don't need to change at all. You're perfect just the way you are. I mean, we like to hear that, right? We like that kind of praise. And that's a lot easier to accept than that we're broken and we need God to change us. D.A. Carson, speaking of these Jews, says says this, Like most people then and now, they were heavily dependent on accepting praise from one another. They made no effort to obtain the praise that comes from God. Inevitably, that meant that they were, uh, that they were open to messianic claimants who used flattery or who panted after great reputations or whose values were so closely attuned to their audience that their audience felt they were very wise and farsighted. They were not open to the Messiah that Jesus was turning out to be, one who thought the only glory praiseworthy of pursuing was the glory of God. So pride can keep us from believing God's word. And as believers, we need to be careful that our pride doesn't keep us from hearing God's word and obeying God's word. Because it's often a lot easier to hear praise than it is to hear that we need to change. And maybe we'd rather hear the voice of our culture that tells us, oh, just stay the way you are, than the voice of God says, change, come along with me. Go where I'm calling you to go. And we know that Jesus is calling us to go somewhere better, that he is bringing freedom in his wake. 
And yet, sometimes it's hard. Sometimes pride can be an obstacle because we want to think that we're all right. We want to think that we have it all together. So these are three possible obstacles to faith, obedience, hearing from God, the authority factor, the focus factor, and the pride factor. We need to be careful as believers that we don't allow these things to be obstacles to hearing from the voice of God, obstacles to obedience. We need to be careful these things don't drown out the voice of God. In C.S. Lewis' book, The Magician's Nephew, which was part of the Chronicles of Narnia series, uh, in that story, uh, Aslan, the lion who's a picture of Christ, has this kind of great creation scene where he kind of uh, speaks the world into existence. And it's kind of this grand call to worship where uh, you know, the, the animals and people kind of hear it and rejoice. But there's one character in the story named Uncle Andrew, and he doesn't hear the voice of Aslan. The reason he doesn't hear is because he's put up obstacles to hearing from the voice of Aslan. C.S. Lewis' book says this, When the great moment came and the beast spoke, he missed the whole point for a rather interesting reason. When the lion had first begun singing long ago, when it was still quite dark, he had realized that the noise was a song. And he had disliked the song very much. He made him think and feel things he did not want to think and feel. Then when the sun rose and he saw that the singer was a lying, only a lion is, he said to himself, he tried his hardest to make himself believe that it wasn't singing and never had been singing, only roaring as any lion might in a zoo in our world. Of course, it, really, uh, it can't really have been singing, he thought. I must have imagined it. I've been letting my nerves get out of order. Whoever heard of a lion singing? And the longer and more beautifully the lion sang, the harder Uncle Andrew tried to make himself believe that he could hear nothing but roaring. Now the trouble about trying to make yourself stupider than you really are is that you very often succeed. Uncle Andrew did. He soon did hear nothing at all but roaring in Aslan's song. Soon he couldn't have heard anything else, even if he had wanted to. And when at last the lion spoke and said, Narnia, awake! He didn't hear any words. He heard only a snarl. And when the beast spoke in answer, he heard only barkings, growlings, bayings, and howlings. May we not be like that. May we not put obstacles in the way of us hearing the voice of God, obeying the voice of God, believing in God's word. I'd like to close by reading a prayer from a book called The Valley of Vision. It's kind of a collection of Puritan uh, prayers. Uh, it goes like this. The world is artful to entrap, approaches in fascinating guise, extends many a gilded bait, presents many a charming face. Let my faith scan every painted bauble and escape every bewitching snare in a victory that overcomes all things. In my duties, give me firm, firmness, energy, zeal, devotion to thy cause, courage in thy name, Love is a working grace, and all commensurate with my trust. Let my faith stride forth in giant power, and love respond with energy in every act. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your great love for us. We thank you for coming to the earth, even though you knew that there would be many who wouldn't believe in you, many who would reject you. Lord, as we look at these, this passage and we see these obstacles uh, to belief. 
Lord, I pray that we would not become ensnared in any of these things, that we'd surrender all of our authority to you, knowing that when we surrender to you, we can have true peace. I pray that our focus would be on you, on your glory, on your gospel, knowing that in and of ourselves we could never experience life, that you alone are our hope, you alone are our treasure. Lord, help us not to be filled with pride, Help us not to look with disdain on those who maybe are not as far along in their journey as we are. Maybe not be in the pits of depression when we fail. May we run to your loving arms, knowing that you will heal us, knowing that you can change us. Lord, in the midst of these difficult times, we pray that we would be people of love, people of grace, people who believe that you are who you say you are. And then you can do what you can say you can do. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.